Hello friends, I think we're nearing Christmas. I'm pre-recording these, of course, but I hope you're having a great winter season. As I'm recording this, it's not even freezing outside, so everything's a mess, but at least it's somewhat warm. We're in chapter 6, and this is a chapter that contains a few stories and a terrible chapter break. This chapter ends right in the middle of a story of the siege of um, Samaria during a famine. And so as I record these, I really like to try to keep it chapter by chapter by chapter and not break it up into um, smaller sections. I get confused when I do smaller sections. So I'm just going to do the chapter, but just be forewarned that the chapter will end right in the middle of a story. And so we're going to have to pick up the story in the next one. But this is a chapter about Elisha ruling over things and especially ruling over kings. So let's get on with it. Verse 1, Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small. Let us go to the Jordan, each and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Please be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master was borrowed. But the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. So this is the miracle of making the axe head float. And so I read this, and there's a few things going on. Number one, there's just, again, this miracle that the God of Elisha is the God who rules over creation and can even reverse the natural properties of, of things and make an axe head float. I'm sure some medieval people thought an angel did it or whatever, but we don't know the mechanics. They don't really matter. Um, he rescued this prophet who was cutting down trees from the probably quite hefty price of replacing that axe head you know a big chunk of metal like that would not have been inexpensive back in those times and so there's a financial rescue going on here through this miracle however when i read this i think you know why is this story here and i notice that this story happens at the jordan river which was the same place that elisha um, crossed with elijah in order to get his his uh, anointing from the Lord. And there is even a bit of a hint of that story where they say, hey, we should go do this. And it's, he says, go. And then he should, you should come with us. And he says, I'll go. And so there's this interchange about going places, which also happened uh, when Elisha took over from Elijah with the servants. And again, just this focus on the prophets who are underneath Elijah. And so I almost feel like there's a bit of a recharge here resetting of this story you've had a number of stories with Elisha and now there's almost a reset where we return to the place where his ministry started and with a similar story and control over the waters of the Jordan the first time he slapped it with his clothes and made it stop and this time he throws a stick into it and makes it give back some iron but we have almost like a reset of the Elisha story and this time the Elisha story so that so for me that tells me that we're probably in the second half of the Elisha story and that this is going to be moving towards a conclusion here could be wrong but that's how I read it also I wonder if there's a bit of a theme where it's talking about the place where they live is not big enough if it's talking about kind of the growth of influence under Elisha he's multiplying the number of prophets under him so the prophetic team is m multiplying under Elisha's rule, which is a good sign. It's fruitful and it's multiplying. 
Verse 8, so now we're going to totally change scenes into a different story that's going to show Elisha ruling over kings. Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. It's very interesting to me that they don't name the kings here. They don't name which king of Syria it is. I think it's Ben-Hadad. I think we, we meet him later. And I think it's, um, I'm actually not sure, was it Joram who might be king here? But they're not named. And what that does is it takes the focus off of who are the kings at this time, and it puts the focus on Elisha as the one who's ruling over them through his uh, supernatural power, through his trust in God. And he's monkeying around with the king of Syria. It's really funny. Like in the last chapter, he was healing the general of the king of Syria. And it's possible that Naaman is with this king of Syria. We don't totally know. They don't tell us the details. But you can, you have every right to imagine that Naaman is standing there with the king of Syria watching this happen and probably understanding what's going on and may actually be the one who speaks in this next section here. So in verse 11 it says, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to him, Will you not show me who is for uh, who of us is for the king of Israel? So he says, There must be a spy amongst us, because the king of Israel will never fall into any of my traps. I set a camp here, and he avoids that place, and then I set a camp there, and he avoids that place. He just keeps eluding us. There must be a spy. Verse 12, and one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Meaning, you know, he's supernaturally discerning what you're talking about in your secret places. And you, it could be Naaman or one of the people that went with Naaman to meet the prophet Elisha. They just get it. This, you have no idea how powerful this guy is, O king. This is what's going on. Elisha knows everything. Verse 13, and he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. But it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. It's very interesting here, you know, just um, speaking of unbelief. The king in his military might has been completely thwarted by Elisha this far. And when he finds out that Elisha is the one doing it, he somehow thinks that He'll be able to take him out with his kingly might now for some reason, instead of just thinking, I'm not going to be able to beat Elisha because he's already thwarted all my military plans. I'm not going to try to take him out by military means. But he doesn't think that way. Kings got a king, and kings try to deal with all their problems with horses and chariots and great armies. And so look what happens. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army of hor with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now notice again that Elisha is being referred to as the man of God. And this, I think what it does is it, it reminds us that the presence of God is focused and most manifest in the prophets during this time not the king not the priests not anyone else god is with his prophets and by referring to him as the man of god over and over again it's highlighting that this is god working through a person and that's why uh, elisha wins is because it's god who's decided to um all right the servant sees and he panics and he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open the eyes 
his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The last time we saw these chariots of fire, they were bringing Elijah up to heaven. And so here is the heavenly host, the armies of God, and they are surrounding the army of man that is surrounding Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So, like I was saying before, because I have read this story, these guys should have had a lot more fear of the Lord, since their military might was already being thwarted by the power of God, the God of Elisha. They should not have come out against him in military might, and the power of the God of Elisha easily defeats them, with simply just striking them blind. So that Elisha just kind of lies to them. It's really funny. You know, Elisha has a different sense of truth-telling than maybe some of us. So he goes up to these blind people and says, Hey, you guys aren't in Dothan. You, you've gone the wrong way. Let me show you the way you should go. So he leads them to Samaria, all these blind guys, who were so strong a second ago until they couldn't see. Verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So this whole story is about being able to see or not. And, you know, um, Elisha told the king of Israel where the other guys were because he could see them. And then he struck these guys. Then he prayed that his servant would be able to see where the Lord is moving. And then he struck these guys blind so they couldn't see. And now he prays for them to see again. This whole section here is about, can you see what's God, what God is doing? Can you see what's going on? Even if you can't see, can you see? Because some people who um, can't see the Lord see him. And other people who can see are actually blind. This actually reminds me of Jesus in the Gospel of John who says he came into the world for judgment because people who think they can see are blind and people who are blind can actually see because they have eyes of faith. So this is a, what that's about, having eyes of faith. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Surprise! And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? So again, we're not named which king it is, but he does relate to Elisha as a great man, calling him my father and asking per for permission. Verse 22, And he see, answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you take captive with your sword and with your bow? Well, they're prisoners. Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he has mercy on them because they were easily defeated and shouldn't just be slaughtered. Verse 23, so he prepared for them a great feast. This is funny. He gave them bread and water. He said, I'll, I'll go up one more degree. I'll level this up. Gave them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Now remember, the servant girl was caught by a raid last week with the story of Naaman. And now the raids will end because... Uh, the Syrians have finally realized that they aren't a match for the prophet of God who is alive in Israel. So they're going to stop. They can be struck blind easily. They could have been all killed by the king. He had mercy on them. And now they're going to go away under the mercy of God. 
So that's the end of that story of Elisha. And then we start this third story, which is the one that we're going to end halfway through. And what we're going to see here is that there's a famine in Samaria. We're going to have the king of Syria uh, named again so that it's a bit more localized in history. And we're going to see Elisha working a miracle here. Okay, afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So there, this isn't a raid. This isn't a little raiding party. This is a full-on conquering. So I'm not sure if they decided to stop raiding and said, like, man, we're, we're just going to have to go all in and try to conquer. Who knows? Verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cob of dove's dung was sold uh, for five shekels of silver okay so interesting news flash so they've got this famine in Samaria there so they're being besieged right so it, they're running out of food and a donkey's head is being sold for a lot and they're even selling dove's dung I wonder if that's for fuel I'm not even sure are they eating it who knows but that's how disgusting it is it's not like they're selling wheat they're selling heads and poop in the market for a lot. Verse 26. And now the king of Israel was passing by on a wall and a woman cried out to him saying, help my, my Lord, O king. Now you get one of the, this is one of the most sad stories and a story that's meant to help us realize how terrible it is to be uh, in rebellion against God and how terrible it can get when you're in rebellion against God. Verse 27. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you from the threshing floor or for the wine press? And so there is some, like, he's, he's upset. He's become embittered, the king. And so he's like, God's mad at us. How can I even help you? Verse 28, and the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. So this is disgusting, but this is a sign of how desperate things are. Um, not only that they're resorting to cannibalism of children, but that there is a woman in the city who is such a fraudster and a con artist. She talked a one woman into them eating her son and then hid. So she's a fraud. She's a con. But they're, they're eating each other alive. Verse 30. And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold... He had sackcloth beneath his body, and he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So the king is in uh, kind of mourning. He's trying to humble himself, um, and he's on the wall, which just explains why everyone can tell what he's wearing, because he's up above them, so the whole crowd can see him. And when he hears about this like disgusting, tragic, horrible event, he wants to attack Elisha about it. Verse 32, And Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? So we switch locations from the king to Elisha, and Elisha is just sitting in his house, and there are elders there. We don't know what they're doing, but... They're probably just sitting there waiting for Elisha to tell them what to do to end the famine and the siege. And he says, well, someone's come to murder me. Don't let them in, and then the king will show up. Verse 33, And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. 
Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Which doesn't make sense. If it's from the Lord, you got to wait on the Lord. But he's frustrated. He's gone mad. And this is the end of the chapter. Which is why I say this is a really bad chapter break. I would have ended the previous chapter before this story started and have this one as its own self-contained story. But that's whoever did the chapter breaks. Who's a man, not God. This is chapter breaks are from people. They're not in the Bible. They're done by the people for referencing the Bible when you're preaching on it. But here's a chapter break, and so we're going to quit. So we've got these three stories of Elijah. The Lord over the water, recommissioning like from Jordan, ruling over the prophets. Lord over the kings, humiliating their armies by just words of knowledge and by working little miracles of blindness. And now we have Elijah in the midst of a famine, presence of God in the city. And for some reason, the king wasn't talking to Elisha wasn't sitting with the elders with Elijah he's walking around and things have just gotten so 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 bad that the king now wants to take out his anger on the prophet and uh, which is I think human I think there's a proverb somewhere where it says a man's own way brings about his ruin yet his heart rages against the Lord and that's probably what's going on here this has probably happened because of the king's idolatry and unbelief and yet he wants to rage against the Lord about it and Elisha is going to turn the tables in the next chapter but we'll have to wait until next time to hear how that goes so in the meantime uh, God is with us for miracles and we ought to be praying that God would open our eyes to see what he's up to so that we're not living in the flesh but we're living with eyes of faith just like Elisha did and amen 